Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today I'll be looking at Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats. So John Keats is perhaps one of the, you know, if you ask most people about an, a, a poet writing in the English language, originally writing in the English language, and then you tell them that they're not allowed to pick Shakespeare, there's a good chance that Keats might be the next name that comes comes from their mouth. There's a few others, obviously, that might be just as, as obvious, but Keats is just one of those big, I guess, top five poets in terms of recognition, in terms of... of, of, of Lots of people know who John Keats is who probably haven't read a single line of his poetry, although they might know a single know a few lines of his poetry. So his fame precedes him. He is in many ways the archetypal romantic poet. He's a romantic figure. He lived from um, 1795 to 1820. So he was born in Halloween, 1795 in London, and he died in Rome of tuberculosis when he knew he was ill when he was in England um, I'm getting ahead of myself already now but yeah he died in Rome um, if you are a visitor to London even though Keats sort of grew up in the city and he and he spent a lot of time also in the borough area which is sort of between Elephant and Castle and London Bridge nowadays borough's still there it's got a very fancy market now but it wasn't a fancy area at the time Keats was there. Keats was living there. And a lot is made of Keats's background as well. So Keats is um, often, because actually, because of the way critics dealt with him at the time. So certainly Keats was belittled as a poet and not entirely accepted as a poet because of his class background. A lot of the poets, especially those we associate with the Romantic era, era did come from um, very well-to-do aristocratic backgrounds. Lord Byron, of course, being an obvious example. Uh, but but a lot of the others, you know, they, they went to Eton or they went to Cambridge or Oxford and even obviously Shelley, who was a pretty good buddy of, well, relatively good buddy of Keats's. It's meant to be that sort of Shelley was more Keats, fond of Keats than Keats was of Shelley. Um, Keats, but yes, yeah, so so... Shelley, Shelley, obviously, he went. To, he got thrown out of Cambridge for writing the an essay called "The Necessity of Atheism," which I spoke about when we looked at Shelley a few podcasts ago. So, Keats, yes, he was belittled a lot because of his background. He probably came from more of a middle class background. He certainly had financial troubles, but it wasn't necessarily. I mean, he grew up in this sort of stable in a sort of inner city farm. But his dad did make money and his dad wanted to send him to Harrow School and he didn't go to Harrow School, he went somewhere else, I forget where that was. And he, um, but his father died when Keats was young, he fell off a horse, he had a horse riding accident and he died. And so his mother remarried and then she ran off with someone else and um, she returned in the end. But ultimately, Keats's estate was left in the hands of someone else, a man, I think it was the husband that she married first, who was very tight. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't actually. There was a lawyer. Keats's grandmother sort of bestowed the estate after after Keats's mother died to a lawyer. And the lawyer was, oh, he, 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 whether he was a con man or whether he was just very tight-fisted, He's, the, the, the Keats family, um, the Keats children, did not see a lot of the estate's money. This man held on to a lot of it. It turned out he held on to about £2,000. Um, people could live on £50 a year at the time. That could be a salary at the time. So you could imagine by today's standards how much money that was. Um, but they, they didn't see that much of it in life. But, but this is again goes to say, yes, Keats knew hardship, but it probably wasn't due to necessarily him being... Um, of a low lower class background he wasn't of a high class background as some of these aristocratic romantic poets and other poets before him but he certainly wasn't sort of, he wasn't a working class poet or wasn't part of the workhouses or whatever cult the culture was there or the peasantry or whatever anything like that he um so he was a he was he was very much a more middle class 
person. His parents, you know, his father was more self-made. So, um, but but some of this is, I think, reason why some of us run away, run away with this idea of him being working class by today's terminology is because he was often referred to as one of the Cockney poets or Cockney people. Cockney Keats by the critics that disparaged him. Um, the opening stirrings of Romanticism, so we have Wordsworth and we have Blake. Um, we should also remember that Romanticism, or the, the Romantic era of poets, it wasn't really coined until the 20th century, that idea of looking at it as the Romantic era. So they weren't referring to themselves as Romantics, but certainly there was a, a, a movement of poets, some of them more connected than others, who espoused values that were more, more romantic by today's standards in the sense that we can compare them. Um, one of the ultimate dichotomies is romantic of, and classical. The irony is actually we, we get both of these from, from the ancients. So classical obviously comes from sort of Greek and Roman architecture and that, that sense of, of art being something that is very constructed and balanced. And there's a bit, bit of a God's eye view going on within the art. And then there's romantic, which again comes from Roman. Well, the term romantic comes from Roman. Now, at the time, it's meant to be that the, the phrase has chopped and changed. For instance, we speak of romantic now as something to do like a romantic comedy, a rom-com, something to do with two people falling in love. Or perhaps ideas that aren't entirely realistic or pragmatic. Uh, we might say that's a romantic idea, a romantic way of looking, you know, a rose-tinted way of looking at things. And so perhaps the romantics could be understood, the use of romantic could be understood in the terms of that second usage of the term romantic rather than the sort of Bridget Jones, Notting Hill way we might think of romantic now. So romantic, but romantic... In in way that we compare it to classicism, if classicism is about balance and composition and harmony, then romanticism is more about human emotions and a human-centric and a humanist way of looking at things, especially yes, the way that our emotion and our imagination places us within the world. One big concern of the, of the romantics was the power of the imagination as a reaction to the mechanization of of the world especially in terms of the industrial revolution so as our culture became more of an industrial machine culture and almost that people became the machines as well the tools that come within it and the ways in which the world was understood at the time through science as well was perhaps more mechanistic mechanistic as well um, the, the the imagination as it often has been seem to be a way of pushing against that. Uh, there's something that Wallace Stevens defined poetry as. Wallace Stevens, the um, fantastic but horrible racist guy who wrote, uh, who I still think wrote some wonderful poetry, even though he was a horrible racist. And um, he writes some horrible racist poetry as well, to be fair. Um, but I still think some of his poems, just that no one else was writing like him at the time. But this isn't about Wallace Stevens. But Wallace Stevens defined poetry in one case as a sort of violence from within crashing and defending us and forming a shield against the violence from without so he went as far to call it violence wallace stevens but i think the romantics say the same thing it's the power of the human imagination the inner human life the transcendent aspects of human experience pitted against the more reductive mechanistic aspects of scientific revolutions and the industrial revolution now that's not to say keats was an anti-scientific guy while he's famous for sort of in in his um he has a sort of coded critique of newton in i think in his epic lamia which is something i'll go into a lot uh, another time who but which is basically sort of this mythical creature a snake even who who is in fact a woman or has the appearance appearance of a woman and who um enters into a relationship with a man where she slowly sort of prostrates herself I guess, and, and and loses sense of her own magical being. It's a very tragic love story about this snake disguised as a woman who falls in love with a man, Lamia by Keats. So, but he speaks about unweaving the rainbow in that in in one of the final verses of that, and one of the cautionary verses. And so, this idea of the power of the imagination, um, he's quite famous for that. But he wasn't necessarily an anti-scientific guy. In fact, he was well educated in science. The kind of education he had embraced science as much as it embraced the classics and it appears he did as well plus also Keats trained as a surgeon and an apothecary and a physic I guess <laughs> as um 
a physician as well. He took an apprenticeship as one. He ended up abandoning that for his poetry, but he certainly worked in hospitals as um, dressing wounds. He certainly saw a fair share of human misery. And maybe that's another aspect for the humanist aspects of his poetry, as well as his keen eye for the pains of life that we are all condemned to. And if he was in touch with the power of the imagination, he was also in touch with the suffering of the human condition and the earthly human condition at that. And I think that's something that we find in this poem that we're about to read and other poems as well. So he was a physician. Then he gave up on being a physician after a while, even when he was a physician and when he was studying to be a physician. Um, you didn't need a degree to be a physician at the time. There are other forms of medicine where you did need to have some kind of degree. But a physician's job was basically to mend broken bones, to stitch people back together together to wrap up bandages and and um and be be i guess a pharmacist so even though to be a general practitioner now you need to have obviously you need to be very well educated back at the time being a surgeon and a general practitioner wasn't seen as 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 um as the most as the highest tier in the practice of medicine so he learnt that he he was all too high and mighty fit mr fancy poet pants when he was around his surgeon buddies and um, but he yeah he eventually gave that up he he never really was entirely again because of his class background and for other reasons as well um wordsworth who he initially idolized i think he fell out of love with <laughs> and wordsworth kind of looked down on him and was quite patronizing to him at times as well um he was seen as a very lovable person by many people though keats seems to come across as a very likable man no more than likable lovable man people genuinely seem to, to fall in love with him we know of one great affair that, that that keats had that would be with fanny brown there's been films that have been made about that as well and um, but not much is known about it because his letters to her, a lot of his letters to her were burned and she was quite tight-lipped about her time with him, him as well. She went to marry someone else. They were meant to be initially engaged at one point, but he said that they couldn't get married until he had proven himself as a poet, become a successful man. So in the end, again, he's he's a physician, so he knew... Um, when he, his family had died of tuberculosis, his mother had died of tuberculosis, at least one of his brothers had died of tuberculosis as well. And um, he ended up with tuberculosis. He knew this when he coughed up blood and he asked someone to sort of hold the, the, the rag that he coughed up blood onto to, to hold it up to a light. And the bright red colour, he knew immediately he defined it as arterial blood. And then he knew he was not long for this world. He, his, his death was forthcoming. He died just over a year after that. Um, in the final couple of years of his life, he wrote some of his greatest works. He really came into his own as, as a poet, even though he's only left a few slim volumes. Um, he wrote epic poems such as Hyperion and perhaps his most famous poems, um, and the Eve of St. Agnes. And his most famous poem is perhaps, poems are perhaps his odes, which come from the odes of Horace. Again, this idea of a romantic tradition. So he was well versed in the classics. He was, of course, another thing that's um, a famous poem on reading Chapman's Homer. He read Chapman's Homer and it was a, a fantastic experience for him. So, so again, he, he's, he read all the classics and um, the romantics. It was about rediscovering old forms um, but you could say that the, the generation that preceded so the Augustan poets, the classicist poets, so we, again we're comparing classicism with romanticism, particularly Alexander Pope, who I think there was a little bit of a falling out that maybe wasn't completely remedied between Byron and Keats when Keats wrote a very critical essay about Alexander Pope. And certainly when we look at the form of his poem, there, there are these poems in the odes, there are definitely ways in which they stray from from the idea um from, from the ideas of the rigid, more rigid perhaps and more balanced and classical ideas of Alexander Pope that he had towards poetry and the romantic idea of self expression and maybe breaking some previous rules such as the end stopped line of poetry. So that would be we know that the line of poetry sometimes breaks off and carries on. So with Pope, when the line breaks 
coincided with the use of punctuation and the sentences. There was never that sense of ambiguity when a line broke broke with it with um, Alexander Pope. There would perhaps be sometimes him playing with the ambiguity of the double meaning where the next line might change things a little bit. But ultimately, they weren't these free flowing sentences that strayed over each line you know both were quite constrained within pope and the augustan poets but with the romantic poets there was that bit more freedom even though there was still formal inventiveness and a certain sticking to the old forms there was still an inventiveness within it so the odes um were yes were were a group of romantic poems um ode to psyche ode to melancholy and Ode on a Grecian Urn are obviously the famous examples of the Odes, but also um, the one we're about to read, Ode to, Ode to a Nightingale. And this is very much the mature Keats, like anyone, like anyone that dies too young, especially all those people that seem to die in their 20s. Um, you know, even, of course, the film about Keats is called Bright Star. And so we get this idea of, a, to, to quote from another film, Blade Runner, how the brightest of flames burns brightest or but no brightest of flames burns fastest so it's a little bit hackneyed isn't it but but we, we sometimes make these assumptions of all these people that die young these artists that die young but you know that they actually just crammed so much into these years and then they burnt out i don't always accept that i think people can grow old and become different kind people can be very intense when they're young and then write different poetry when they're older but it certainly doesn't mean that most of them found their creative peak when they were young, passionate poets. So I always think with all these stories, the death wasn't a price to pay for shining so bright. I think death is just disease or illness, be it physical or mental illness. It's just always depriving the world of someone brilliant and depriving someone brilliant of the pleasures of life, even if their life can be painful. So... I am going to read out the poem now and we can talk a bit more about it afterwards. So, Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains My sense as though of hemlock I had drunk Or emptied some dull opiate to the drains One minute passed and Leatherwoods had sunk Tis not through envy of thy happy lot but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that have been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret, here, where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, through the dull bre Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee. Tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown, through verdurous glooms and widening mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet, 
wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass the thicket and the fruit tree wild white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine past fading violets covered up in leaves and mid-may's eldest child the coming musk-rose full of dewy wine the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves darkling i listen and for many a time i have been half in love with easeful death called him soft names in many amused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath now more than ever seems it rich to die to cease upon the midnight with no pain while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy still wouldst thou sing and i have ears in vain to thy high requiem become a sod thou wast not born for death immortal bird no hungry generations tread thee down the voice i hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of ruth when sick for home she stood in tears amid the alien corn the same that oft-times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn forlorn the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my sole self adieu the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is fain to do deceiving elf adieu adieu thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows over the still stream up the hillside and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades was it a vision or a waking dream fled is that music do i wake or sleep so one handle i get straight away i'm reading that man if I, if you guys only knew how many takes i do with these poems because i never spend enough time rehearsing them before i record myself reading them out or i kind of forget what i did learn or pick up in rehearsing with my garrulous introductions to the poem at the beginning of the podcast but when i read this i'm telling you now yep a few hiccups i put my hand up uh that have since been edited out no doubt but keats just trips off the tongue so easily i think which shows his skill i think as a poet that there are other poets i have read out and yes these are famed poets poets that we that we rightly celebrate for their skill and their brilliance but it's just keats he's just that just rolls off you know it's like it's like butter melting on my tongue it really is it's just this amazing poetry that seems to flow through me i guess a bit like the song of a nightingale but of course this poem isn't really saying that this poem is if anything saying that we fail we fail to match the nightingale as human beings that create art or write poetry or maybe it is a poem about the power of art it certainly is in the earliest stanzas and about how we are in a fallen state as human beings and there is something just utterly pure about this song of a nightingale but even the nightingale itself is obviously unaware of it's understood better perhaps from our place of suffering than it is from the, the just the natural state of being that the nightingale perhaps too easily occupies so there's a lot going on in this poem and i think that one thing that we should understand about an ode or an ode as, as how keats wrote it is there's often one particular argument that unfurls in each stanza but this changes emphasis in the next stanza as well so the argument can turn around and contradict itself and the mood can change as well and both happen here and in a lot of this it does seem that Keats's mind is racing and that he is changing his mind or contradicting himself in different ways. And there's a certain aspect of the life of the mind and where the way that things chop and change and the way that we sort of follow trains of thought and then quickly abandon them and fly off in another direction and fly off in this direction. And hey, as the Buddhists and others would say, this is the very core of human suffering. And maybe that's the kind of human suffering that is caught so well, as well as the blissful experience of nature that's caught so well in this poem. So I think the best way of looking through this poem initially, because I feel like I'm contradicting myself about the poem already, is to just look at every stanza 
maybe reread it quickly and then just quickly talk about what the emphasis of that stanza is and then we can go back and look at the technical aspects of a poem after that and maybe look at look at the sort of where it fits as well within its literary period so it begins my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock i had drunk so it begins it begins with pain it doesn't necessarily begin with the song of a nightingale at all it begins with keats's sense of despondency the ache of his heart the human condition suffering the struggle so yes my sense as well of hemlock i had drunk hemlock obviously being the way in which uh people such as socrates were able to poison themselves and, and and kill themselves once they were commanded to die or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute passed and lethal woods had struck had sunk so leaf um, I think Leaf is, is perhaps, I think, is it a river that separates the land of the living from the land of the dead? So, you know, he's, it's, it's like he's dying. So, tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, like winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green, and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. So we finally get to the idea of of his pain but what is his pain about well it's not envy at all it is happiness it is being too happy at the happiness of the nightingale so as we go out for the go throughout the poem we get this now idea that that, that he, yes of course um it's night time and keats is sitting perhaps in a wood in the dark and he can't really see much he can't see the stars but he hears the nightingale and there's something about the song of the nightingale that wakes him Maybe it wakes him from his pain, but then it immediately reminds him of his pain. So the joy, the happiness of the nightingale at the same time provokes this misery within him. That would be the first stanza. So the second stanza, how does it chop and change? Oh, for a draught of vintage that have been called a long age in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. So this is flora, I think, in the in the classical reference, one of the... um one of the gods or goddesses um to do with flowers obviously flora being flowers and rather than margarine um he doesn't want to drink wine that's that tastes like margarine but yeah oh for it so yes oh for a draft of vintage that have been called a long time in a deep delved earth he's straight onto the wine <laughs> as we all do as many of us do when we're suddenly feeling this uh this intense anxiety and pain that is brought about by joy <laughs> just sounds like a call for booze doesn't it so he's calling for the booze um and so yes but also the way that the that the booze can bring back not this cold place in 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 maybe Hampstead where he's sat under a tree in the dark but where um where you know the, the warmer climes of a continent where the wine comes from that something is captured from those warmer climes that uh that, that can be imbibed while from drinking it Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the blue, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple stained mouth, that I may drink and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim. So, the argument for the next line is pretty much introduced there. There does seem to be a role where the, that sometimes the, the next stanza is foreshadowed by the couplet which follows the anti-penultimate line, or the, um, so these are... Look at me going into the form right away. These are ten line stanzas, but the eighth line is much shorter than the other lines, and this carries on. So, that, and then it's followed by a couplet again, which is of the same length um, in iambic pentameter. So he talks about drinking, and we're we're so as we get to that point of purple stained in, stained mouth, we end up we come into this final couplet of his stanza that i might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim so this idea of fading away is introduced and that is carried on in the next stanza so fade far away dissolve and quite forget what thou among the leaves has never known the weariness the fever and the fret here where men sit and hear each other groan where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. 
So he's talking about needing to fade away while drinking drinking the wine. Now, whether the, the fading away is losing himself in the song of a nightingale. So fading away, it could be meant as a loss of selfhood. As a corporeal being, a sort of a momentary loss of selfhood. Or maybe it is just to die, to, to stop existing completely. I think both could be relevant ways of reading this stanza where he looks ahead to to old age and death and just sees how everything ends. Um, but, but thinking of a high of this moment at the same time and that bit, that high, that sense of happiness that he realizes will diminish. Well, has already diminished on inspection to be fair. I mean, they say, um, the unexamined life is not worth living and we can certainly, um, through mindful examination of our negative emotions, we can sometimes defeat those negative emotions or lessen the power they have over us. But hey, it seems to happen for happy emotions as well. But as a poet, uh, you are le led to naturally examine it. And the next moment, it can also kind of fade or become dismantled or fade away. And that seems to be what happened with Mr. Keats here. So, where beauty cannot leap her lustrous eyes or, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. And then he says, away, away, it's the next stanza, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, for over dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee, tender is the night. So, yeah, he's saying, no, I'm not, okay, you know what, I will not follow you for having a drink, because maybe if I have a drink, I will enter that same state of bliss, and maybe when I'm a bit ratted, I can just like, fade away. You know, just the brain retards. But now he's saying, no, actually, you know what? I will I will write poetry. This is how I can sing my song could be one thing. I can raise to these heights by writing something beautiful. Poetry is the, the way that humans sing in the same way as the nightingale, especially in this romantic idea of poetry. And so he goes on to describe the night. Already with thee, tender is the night, and happily the queen moon is on her throne, clustered round by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through virtuous glooms and winding, winding mossy ways. So he very much is in the dark. Maybe he is within a forest. He can't see the stars. Maybe it's cloudy. I don't think London had that much um, light pollution in 1819 as it does now. So he goes on to speak about the darkness that he's in. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet, wherewith the seasonable month endows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral, pastoral elgut. I had real trouble saying this word when I first read it. You don't know how many blooming Eglantine. Eglantine? Fast fading violets covered up in leaves and mid-May's eldest child. The coming musk rose, full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves. So all these sensations that he's intuiting, perhaps from the scent, but also actually, and from the sound of things and from the breeze. But no, this must be his imagination as well, mustn't it? The, the, you know, the song of the power of the imagination is all, also coming into play here. Darkling, I listen. And for many a time I've been half in love with easeful death, called in soft names in many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. So it's almost like that he would die, become part of nature and absorb the beauty of the song. So this is a willingness to die, but almost a, a willingness to be reclaimed by nature as well, to absorb things, to be like a, a sod, to be like um, roots even, something that drains up the water. Um, and so, yeah, and he confesses to being half in love with easeful death. This idea again of, I mean... It's an important point to make when we think about the people that he loved, that he saw die in ways which were not peaceful or easeful. You know, I don't know if he saw his mother die, um, but the deaths that, that people have had, and especially perhaps the deaths that he witnessed when he was a surgeon, these were not the, 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 the person slipping away. You know, if he was a surgeon and he saw people die on the table or to see, to see them die in the gurney, 
he saw painful, terrible deaths. He saw the worst moments in human life. And so, yes, he's sort of in, in love with death, but not in love with the, with dying. I think a lot of people say that. A lot of people who don't believe in a in an afterlife, yeah, but, you know, you'll say to them, are you scared of death? And they'll say, I'm not scared of death. I'm just scared of dying. And maybe that's what's what's coming through here. But again, he changes. So he's confronting his own mortality and embracing his own mortality, mortality to a degree, but then turns it round again. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when sick for home. She stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. So he's so he's he's saying that like there's something eternal about this bird that perhaps he's definitely sure that this nightingale song is immortal in the sense that it's pretty much perhaps the same as the song of other nightingales there's not this you know the way that humans sing is 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 still very much married perhaps to our individual personas and personalities that that is not a problem that the nightingale has the nightingale in some ways, the song is exactly the same that was heard by the in Roman times by the emperor and the clown. Then he goes to speak of the biblical, the Old Testament references as well, Ruth. So he's looking at all these historical and religious um, ways of looking at things. But then he goes further to sort of say maybe in other worlds, in fairylands, on other shores. Maybe if we spoke about alien planets now um, with alien races maybe in Keats' time it was more an idea of these magical realms of these magical creatures living in them and finally the final the final the final stanza which again the last word of the of the stanza before is forlorn then through very saying the word forlorn he draws attention to the word itself and his use of language itself forlorn the very word is like a bell to tell me back from thee to my soul self adieu the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf adieu adieu by play so let's just let's 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 get that quatrain first shall we those four lines well it's not a quatrain but you know what i mean it's a set of ten lines but the first four lines of those ten lines um so he's woken up, the very whispering of the word forlorn has woken him up like a bell and he's back in his own consciousness and he's almost forgotten, he's forgotten the music of the nightingale. He cannot hang on to and hold on to it anymore. To tell me back from thee to my soul self, adieu. The fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Now that is probably quite a, a modern mind, let's say a non-Victorian, non-romantic mindset even, might have trouble unpacking that line because of the imagery i mean elf we're already thinking of like things that walk about with little green hats on going ho 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 and um he doesn't really mean that elf is a more mythical being i know we have elves in um or elves 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 in in um who are those really sanctimonious pillocks in tolkien so you know you've got the elves apart from legolas who likes you know riding down elephants trunks after he's killed them so apart from it, which isn't very sanctimonious, really, is it? But, well, maybe it is. Anyway, but um, from Tolkien back to and and certain um, New Zealand evocations of Tolkien, back to the idea of what elf might be. So uh, the elf is more like, yes, again, this mythical creature, like a fairy. Now, the fancy, the fancy is the imagination. That's a, a term that the when they speak of the fancy, Blake used that term as well at the times. It just means the fancy is... Um, our imagination i fancy it to be i imagine it to be so yes the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf so for all these testaments to the power of the imagination from the romantics he almost says that no you know what can't quite get us there can it my internal image of a song of a nightingale is always a slightly faded a slightly um slightly inferior copy something that gives me a sense that i'm hearing it but not the full sensation, the sense without the sensation, I would say. 
so yes, it's sort of, he's almost talking about how the imagination is powerful, but it fools us. There's something about us really experiencing something in the world and then us imagining something. And the imagination, mm, I know that dreams can be very powerful, but our, little, our daydreams, they don't quite seem, they seem to be kind of bloodless compared to how we are in the real world, even though we get distracted by our minds all the time final six lines adieu adieu thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows over the still stream up the hillside and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades was it a vision or a waking dream fled is that music do i wake or sleep we'll get onto that last line because it's a very famous last line and i think it's a commonly misunderstood last line too so we we have the image of the yes him waking up then the goodbye goodbye of our plaintive anthem fades past in the meadows that the song is fading away and then we get to this was it a vision or a waking dream fled is that music do i wake or sleep so here he is quite questioning that kind of as he's just announced the imagination but he is questioning that idea of what side of the imagination we are on and I think the last line, you know, fled is that music, do I wake or sleep? It can be read in a couple of ways. It can be read in that first year philosophy student. No, not even that. Just sort of that idea of, um, oh, are we? Oh, is this the real world or are we actually dreaming? Or actually, it's even worse than that. The, the, the new version, the, it's far more smug is, maybe we're actually in a simulation. We don't know. It's just... um. It's so wonderfully naive, and I don't, I don't think Keats was going there. I don't think Keats was going. Whoa, maybe we're dreaming right now. You wake up, but you don't know, do you? You might wake up again. How do you know this life isn't a dream? You don't know is a short answer. Now, carry on sniffing your poppers and listening to I don't know whatever the students listen to these days. <laughs> Hello, students, if you're listening to this. Anyway, I'm sure you're not using poppers. Anyway, where was I? Um, yes. So do I wake or sleep? So what else could be meant by that term? Do I wake or sleep? If I was if I was doing it, it is more the idea, I think, of waking up or sleeping in the sense that um, when we're actually <laughs> it's, you know, the music's gone and he's going back to his day to day affairs. And so we could call the end of a reverie as waking. But actually, it is more of a sense of a reverie where we are perhaps more in touch with the sublime perhaps um when he's what well, keats obviously at the end of another poem said in beauty truth and truth beauty can't remember what order it was ode of greece ode on a grecian urn and that sort of mirrors itself here as well and again it's got this kind of comparison you know do i wake or sleep um and so yes he's you know the the, the real the, the the keatsian idea of truth is this idea that when we are utterly sort of in communion with the world through the sublime be it the sort of terrors of the natural world or the beauty of the natural world and it is always about an, a, a relation to nature with the um with with the romantic poets and the sort of the way that the nate the, the the structures of nature mirror the structures of our emotional states and how they concord of each other and color each other and so he's hitting this reverie here where you know his emotions are in communion with the natural world when he hears this hears this nightingale singing so in some ways because it's a reverie it could be thought of as a dream and that when the reverie is over and he's returned to the workaday world that we are all condemned to be in which is hinted at throughout the poem with his references to death and the dullness of of life then then obviously oh that's the dream and now we're waking up but actually maybe it's not maybe there's an aspect of reality that he is in connection with a real brilliant actual immediate way of seeing the world that he is in communion with then and it's actually as we go back to our worldly affairs as we go to back to our mindless trudge through reality towards those gray hairs and towards the oblivion that waits after that maybe that's more a kind of a sleep a walking sleep a waking sleep than the dream the world in which perhaps the imagination is at its most high communion with the natural world that's how i would read that line but maybe if i found that maybe maybe we'll find a letter by keats tomorrow that says what if when we wake up from sleep and we're dreaming, I don't know why I'm doing a Cockney accent. I noticed I did a Cockney, it's Cockney Keats, isn't it? Forgot about that. 
Maybe maybe he meant that. I don't know. Maybe I'm the one who's wildly extrapolating. That's all I'm saying. So a note on the form. I've already spoken about it. We have these 10-line stanzas in iambic pentameter. Again, the way in which Keats and the Romantics like to play with the ideas of form. There is that little line, that little eighth line in the next valley glades and the same that oft times half, which is about three stresses, I'd say, rather than the five. In such an ecstasy, that's definitely three stresses happening there rather than the five stresses of iambic pentameter. But it does seem to give the moment of, you know, the poem a natural caesura or a natural moment of pause before we resume the pentameter. And not always throughout this poem, but a lot of the time, those final two lines of the stanza seem to foreshadow what will be developed or contradicted in the next stanza uh, most magically happen of course where the, the the stanza ends with the forlorn and begins with forlorn a lot has been made about that final stanza as well sorry i keep on moving stuff i'm going to move this tablet that i read the poem off i'm going to move it over here now that was graceful wasn't it that's that's what you get with podcasts isn't it now you don't get that rubbish on radio 4 would you you know what i mean like someone on radio 4 would commit seppuku live on air if they made a graceless fud like that probably because they got some assistant to kind of slowly take things away from them and put new things in their hands i don't know so the um final line in that sense has often been spoken about a lot whether it's a commentary on poetry but actually the the the, the poem could end on the stanza before you know about the sort of um vanishing away of the um of the song of the um A lot have been said about the final stanza of that poem, about whether it is a commentary on poetry itself, about the limits of the imagination, and about the almost the, the you know the word forlorn. It's like a bell. Human language we can never quite reach as poets. We are always creatures that are in between. And as much as um we've spoken about how he was critical of Alexander Pope. There is that idea of Alexander Pope in his um, verse essay on the uh, on the nature of man, I think. Oh, I'm so forgetful today. But he says that man is somewhere between sort of the gods, the angels and the animals. We are man is the measure of all things is the famous line that Pope uses in that verse essay. And so the poet is sort of seen as a sort of in between thing as well, the sort of state of human life. And then there's the sort of. The, the joy of rapture and the brutality of nature and how we're kind of poetry almost leads and art leads us and music leads us halfway there but we never quite get there we never quite reach it um there's another um and i i really have to grasp up my memory of it because i have to reread the book again at some point because it's a fantastic book called the hatred of poetry by ben lerner from a few years ago that's l-e-r-n-e-r -E -E and i've referenced it before already in how he spoke about Walt Whitman, but he also speaks about O to a Night O to a Nightingale. And I forget the exact points he makes about O to a Nightingale, but in the way that he says that Whitman so it's called the hatred of poetry because he thinks poetry he's a poet, he loves poetry really, but he actually hates it. <laughs> and he takes that from a line by Marianne Moore. And the reason why he hates poetry is because it kind of creates an idea of itself and it deceives us into thinking that it's achieved that idea. And that's like what the cleverest and the best poetry does. It's so good because it seems to be about something. And then it it creates through the, through the masterful use of language and the music of language and technical aspects as well as the use of image. It manages to confuse us. It manages to mix up the idea of this ultimate version of an art form and it makes us mistake it for the execution of the art form and so Whitman when we looked at Lerner's idea of Whitman about Whitman's sort of hints at this poetry that speaks to everyone and talks about this poetry that speaks to everyone but his poetry in some ways is so loved because he tricks us into thinking his poetry is that poetry that speaks to everyone. And he said there's something similarly at work with Keats in Ode to a Nightingale where he's speaking of his unattainable music. And, and to be fair, lots of Keats is full of his sort of belittling of himself, his inability, his inability to create, to match his influences, to match the nature of the influences in or, or Shakespeare or um, any of the great classical poets or um, 
the ones that came before him that he was influenced by as well. So, you know, he's always belittling himself at the same time. But some people sometimes see it as almost perhaps affectation, maybe just more a habit of a time, which is people, he must have been well aware of how much of a good poet he was. I mean, we, we look at, um, we'll look at some of the language in the lines again in a second, but before we wander off on one, but he, um, yes, so he creates this idea of his purity, this pure song. And even though poem is almost a denial of his ability to create that pure song himself within his poetry, he still somehow manages to, to convince us that he has carried it off with his poem um, because of how beautiful the poem sounds. But the reason why the poem sounds beautiful, part of why Ben Lerner, I think, says that the poetry poetry sounds so beautiful is because it's introduced us to an idea of the perfectly beautiful poem that concords perfectly with nature and then tricks us a little bit into thinking that that idea has actually been realised rather than suggested by the poem. A little look at the music, because I think it's important. This isn't about the fudding end rhyme. There's plenty of internal rhyme within the poem so if we look at the um forlorn like final stanza let's just pick a few things out of the final stanza forlorn the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self adieu the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf so fancy and famed sort of the f adieu and as she is famed, adieu the fancy as she is famed. So already there's a sort of assonance and, a, you know, there's there's also alliteration. But the A to the F-A sound in the, those two lines and then adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades. So again, plaintive and fades as well rhyme. So plaintive happens in the middle of a line and then fades happens a couple of syllables later so lots of a alliteration adieu adieu by plaintive anthem fades adieu adieu anthem as she adieu um so past the near meadows over the still stream up the hillside and now it is very deep in the next valley glades was it a vision or a waking dream fled is that music do i wake or sleep so also the rhymes are quite sort of irregular in the sense that they're quite mixed up and when when they're not nudging right against each other in rhyming couplets as they are in pope then um the music is a bit more subtle we hear the rhymes but we can't quite place the immediate rhyming sound that came before that it follows there's more of a ghost of that rhyme within our memory because we're already busy with other lines but we recognize that sound when we hear it again it's like wait a minute that rhymes with a sound that came a few lines ago so yes yeah, so bell self well elf okay that's a b a b and then fades stream deep glades dream sleep so actually if anything that is like an italian sonnet so it's almost like he's he's done a mashup is they're like short sonnets in a way they they begin with a sort of a shakespearean rhyme scheme of us that you would find in the shakespearean sonnet of a b a b but then it Rather than there being, if it was a sonnet, perhaps you could make this into a sonnet by writing um, another quatrain, another four lines that followed that bell, self, well, elf rhyme scheme, that ABAB rhyme scheme. And then you could have those, that final sort of sestet following afterwards. And you would pretty much, apart from one of the lines being a bit shorter, you'd still have a good variation of a sonnet. And so they are like little chopped down sonnets, each of these lines. But they're like the Italian sonnets where different rhymes are used. So he's playing around with the forms and um, this is pretty much a form that he created, even though it was inspired by the odes of Horace. Um, but, but there's plenty of alliteration as well. And it's just it's not just about everything hinging on the music at the end of each line. There is plenty of assonance. So assonance is when the vowel sound rhymes. But there's also lots of similarities in the consonants when we get alliteration. And so that's all threaded throughout the poems. And that's his skill as a poet there, his ability, just the music that's within each line. And it isn't just reliant on these big clanging endings to the end, sounds to the end of each line. Now, to be fair, Pope did similar things as well himself. Um, but I just think... Um, that that Keats does it so well as well. And even though I could still talk about this poem for ages, I think I'm going to leave it there because I think it is time for me. 
I'm going to leave it on there because it's time for me to call on Mr. Flair. And if I'm calling on Mr. Flair, Mr. Ric Flair, that is. Yes, this is the point where, once again, I um, give up any pretense of academic rigor. And I wander off on one. Thank you, Mr. Flair. So when I'm stuck for an idea of how to wander off on one at the very end of the episode, I often, I think the best question to ask myself is what does this poem offer to a listener in the 21st century? And then I tried to, I tried to elaborate on this in a way that doesn't end with me going on in my typical rants against technology, even though I'm embracing technology to make this podcast and share it with people. But I'm, I just, I'm, I, I, I'm too into holier than thou rants about social media and i'll try and lessen my my rants on those so how can this poem help us in this day and age i think it can help us in the sense that um i think we still have these reveries i still think we have these moments of transcendence i think there will always be a point in your life um even in a in this modern world full of industrial noise and digital noise and electricity we'll have moments of transcendence and that moment of transcendence was always followed by a dip and a return. And maybe that is the point where if we're following Keats's logic, the point where we're going back to sleep again. And actually, there's a momentary wakefulness. One of my last transcendent, transcendent experiences of nature, um, and mine's always tied to the urban because I live in London. Although there's a lot of trees in South London, actually. One thing that always gets me, and I always end up writing a little haiku about it, is... L leaves <laughs> i like leaves <laughs> do you like leaves leaves are great but leaves how they look i mean for, there's a few trees right so the way i i have the same walk i do every day when i'm dropping my kids off to school and i go what past one tree that i think is a canadian maple or might be a black cherry tree i'm not sure i was once a gardener but i was never an arborealist but there's a certain red that this tree goes to and i always remember just having to stop for a moment and really, really look at it and really experience it and just have a moment of pure being and then go back to my phone or whatever I'm looking at, normally video game sites, actually. If I spent as much time researching this podcast as I spent researching my next video game purchase, this really would be the best poetry podcast in the world, I'm telling you. But it's not. So, but but um, you, you still love me, I know you do. So yeah, there's that. So... But one day I was so caught up in all my BS that I walked past a tree. It was about a year ago. I walked past a tree and I looked at it and there wasn't a single leaf on it. And I realised this is a tree I look at every year. But I had missed it. The leaves had turned to this brilliant red. And then they slowly wilted and they fell one by one. And the gardener man came up and he raked them up. He chucked them into a bag or something and dumped them on a compost heap where they turned into compost and were, for all intents and purposes, of our way of understanding the world, those leaves were gone. And I woke up and I remember, I just remember just this moment of, the thing that woke me up was not the leaves itself, but the absence of the leaves. <laughs> so I had my Keatsian moment, you could say, oh, Keatsian moment is something completely different, by the way. I had my moment of, um, actually, I'll tell you what a Keatsian moment is. I'm totally stealing my thunder if I do Grecian urn later. But a Keatsian moment in Ode on the Grecian urn, there's two lovers who are about to kiss and they're captured on the urn. And he actually sort of says, this is perfect for you guys. This is the best moment. <laughs> you know, everything else is disappointment. He, You know, the best moment is the moment of anticipation. So the best moment is the moment when you are about to kiss someone and you're like, oh my God, we're about to kiss. It's amazing. And he said that there's a joy of that, which is actually better than everything else that follows. Um, and so maybe that's what happens here um so you know but maybe that happened with me when i looked up at those leaves i don't know and then there's an absence of leaves so i had a moment there but also yes yeah, somewhere else when there's a magnolia bush so when it's a couple of magnolia trees just past those trees and then i know it's spring when i see these magnolia flowers opening and um so i still keep up that practice and you bet i watched those leaves turn red this year after i had that horrible punch in the gut of they're already gone and i wasn't aware i wasn't alive to watch it i was caught up in whatever else i was caught up in um so yeah this year i made a certainly a definite effort to look at those leaves so 
I love those moments. I, so I say that you can have these moments when you really walk around and notice things. You can have these moments. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be some epic thing. Maybe the song of a nightingale in itself is quite ordinary. I th I've got to say, I can't recall exactly what a song of a nightingale was like. And yet Keats has filled my mind with this definite idea of what a night. Can you believe that? Actually, I just realized this. Maybe I've researched it before. I don't know what a nightingale song sounds like. I've done this whole podcast about a poet talking about the song of a nightingale and how it makes him feel. And I don't actually know what he's talking about. And I've just spoken about it for about an hour. Now that, that is the deception and the lie of poetry. Perfectly conveyed, is it not? That's the brilliance of poetry. That's the brilliance of Keats that I have never, I could go on Google right now or YouTubes or whatever and listen to a nightingale. And maybe I'll just go, is that it? I don't know. Or maybe I'll go ah, and have my own little reverie and then just get really drunk on some wine. Before saying, no, I'll write some poems. Now they're rubbish. Shall I die? No, I won't die. Um, maybe life is a simulation. And if life is a simulation, then maybe we are still bound by its laws. Because even if life in the world is a simulation, this is what you say to the, the gap year student or whatever when they say this. You say, if life is a simulation, then it is a simulation to all intents and purposes that follows very rigorous laws and cause and effect because no one seems to be able to escape it. And while there might be some God programmer that can hit the keys and immediately make something amazing happen, that's not happening right now. So by, for all intents and purposes, that might as well be a miracle because this is obeying laws and strictures and logics and everything and causes and effects. So so if that is the case, then this world is no more real than the world that the simulation is playing out on a hard drive within somewhere else. In other words, when we really look at the function and structure of things, it makes no difference would be my point. That would be my point. If I'm a brain in a jar, it doesn't matter. The world that I've been placed within follows a certain logic and a certain true sense of cause and effect. And so that is what I'm stuck with that creates pleasure and pain within my being. So ultimately, that is reality, whatever its higher levels are. And I'll leave you with that. <laughs> That's how you wander off on one, people. So thank you very much for listening. If you want to share this podcast, please share it. Please share it. Please share it by, by sharing it on social media, by saying something nice about it in the reviews, be they on Spotify, or I don't know, on SoundCloud on um leave a comment on soundcloud click like on it leave a leave a leave a nice review on the apple podcasts page or itunes if you like just whatever you can do to help share this podcast i beg you to do it because you know i'm getting about 40 50 between 30 and 50 hits for a podcast at the moment it's it you know what and it makes me happy it makes me really happy but you know i'm not really happy and i'll never i'll never be happy until i get a billion listeners and then i still won't be happy but i'll have momentary happiness momentary fits that are immediately followed by a great plummet as is illustrated by the poem thank you for listening have a good one see you next week bye bye